souls. But they said, we will not walk therein. Heavenly Father, help us as we try to look to your word for just a few minutes now. I pray for myself that you would help me to be able to focus, to say what you would want me to say, to leave out what you would want me to leave out. I pray for all of us that we'd be able to give just the next few minutes to uh, the word of God for all of our attention, that apart from the cares of this life and whatever we have going on now, that this would be a time that we would seek to hear from your word. I pray that you would help me preach. I pray you'd help me to the best of my ability to look to the text without prejudice or agenda and be able to say, thus saith the Lord, so that we can hear from heaven. We love you and we ask for your help now at this time. In Jesus' name, amen. While I wasn't alive for it, I think some of you may have been around even enough to remember when in 1985, Coca-Cola decided they were going to mess with their formula and replaced classic Coke with what they called new Coke. Some of their test studies had indicated that the public was beginning to prefer sweeter tasting sodas like Pepsi Cola, so they completely redid their formula, changed it, and called it New Coke. Well, after about three months of extreme backlash, they went back to classic Coca-Cola and began to sell even more than they were before because they listened to the public that the new thing they tried was not any good, so they had to go back to the old. In 2006, the National Basketball Association announced without consulting the players union that they were going to be introducing a brand new basketball that was going to be better than the old school leather basketball. It would be made of fully synthetic material and it was going to help with sales and help with the play of the game. The backlash from the players was immediate and irate as they began to play with the new ball that was made out of synthetic material and their fingers began to get cuts and abrasions and they said it just didn't handle the same or shoot the same way. They did some further studies and found out that the ball bounced about 5% less when you dribbled with it and that it was hard to be as accurate with their shots. And after the complaints from many famous star players and the players union filing an unfair labor practice, two separate suits with the National Board of Labor, three months later, the NBA decided, or I believe by December, so that would be about two months later, they decided we're going to go back to the old way and do away with the attempt at the new one. Well, those stories are funny. They can illustrate that sometimes taking something that is proven and tried and true and trying to come up with a new idea that outdoes it can be a bad idea. The text that we're looking at today is something far different and far deeper than trying new Coke or a new basketball. The Jews had left the old for something new, but what they did was they left the old way, which was the way that God had told them they were to live, the commands that he gave them directly from his word, and replaced it with their own way. As we study the book of Jeremiah, we find out that the Jews had given themselves over to idolatry and the worship of false religion, immorality, and some of them were even offering their children as burnt sacrifices to the devils they were now claiming to worship. The prophet Jeremiah lived in this day and age, and he lifted up his voice and preached against the new sinful, wicked way that the nation was beginning to follow as they departed from the old paths that God had commanded them to walk in. If you read the pages of the book of Jeremiah, you'll find him condemning strongly the idolatry, the greed of the priest and of the false prophets. And 600 years before Christ, Jeremiah cried out against the sins of the people and he was known as the weeping prophet. He also wrote the book of Lamentations, where if you read that short little book, he's lamenting the fact that his people refused to repent of their sin and that God was sending them away into judgment. And he weeps and he says, mine eyes are filled with tears for the daughters of my people. Is it nothing to you, all you that pass by? How can it not affect your eye and your heart to see the sin of the land and the judgment that God is going to allow to come upon us? God told Jeremiah to tell the people that unless they repented, the nation of the Babylonians would come from the north, would ransack Israel, and would start to take away many of their people captive. And their young men and their young women would be taken by the soldiers and made slaves and taken back to Babylon and be forced to serve that nation. Jeremiah preached this 20 years before it happened. 
just one of a plethora of promises and prophecies from the word of God that came true exactly as God said they would. That proves that when we study the Bible, we're not studying the words of men. We are studying the words of God. We see prophets today who claim to be prophets or who take the title and they'll try to predict different things such as the crash of the economy, the return of Christ, whatever it may be. And sometimes they get it wrong. Often, actually, they get it wrong. And then they say, well, my formula was a little bit wrong and here's where I messed it up. But in the Old Testament, God told his people, if you want to know the test of a false prophet, if they get it wrong one time, they're a false prophet. But the prophets that spoke for God on the authority of the word of God always got their prophecies right because as Peter tells us, the prophecies came not in the old time by the will of man, but the men wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit and gave us the very words of God. God had a covenant with Israel that they would be his chosen people, that their nation would remain and that the son of David would be their ruler in Jerusalem forever. These different covenants that God made with Abraham and with David, we believe are still in effect that God has not cast off his people. And through the end times prophecies where Jesus Christ, who is called the son of David, will eventually sit on the throne and reign and rule in Jerusalem for a thousand years, followed by a new heaven and a new earth where God says the name of it will be the new Jerusalem. God's promise to the Jews will still be fulfilled. However, God always included the caveat that if they were to rebel and if they were to sin against God, that God would not withhold all punishment. He would rather put them through the fire of trial and of persecution. And in so doing, it would be his way of punishing them so that he could call them to repent and come back to God. And then eventually he would still fulfill all. Jesus said, when Jesus said to the Jewish people, you're rejecting me. I'm going away and you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. That is a title of the Messiah. That is a way of saying we recognize you as God. So Jesus said to the Jewish people, you're rejecting me now. I'm going away. The next time you see me, it will be when you are finally ready to repent which is what we believe God will use the tribulation period to bring about in the nation of Israel. For no one gets into the kingdom of heaven by being born a Jew or an American or a Baptist or a good person or anything else, but only through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jeremiah begins in Jeremiah chapter one by saying, God called me from my mother's womb. He ordained me. He called me to go to this people and to preach in a very dark hour, the judgment of the Lord, yet still give a path and a picture of hope and of redemption. We're going to walk through several selected scriptures here from the book of Jeremiah. If you'll just stick with me, read the verses on the screen or on your Bible and be able to take in the word of God as we sort of set the foundation for building up to Jeremiah chapter six and explore this idea of what God was talking about when he said, you've departed from the old paths and sought something new that I have not commanded. Jeremiah 113 and the word of the Lord came unto me the second time saying, what seest thou? And I said, I see a seething pot and the face thereof is toward the north. Then the Lord said unto me out of the north and evil shall break forth upon all the inhabitants of the land. So the nation of Babylon was in the north of Judah, of Israel. And God said that they're like a boiling pot that's going to come down and consume the nation of Israel for their sin. For lo, I will call all the families of the kingdoms of the north, saith the Lord. And they shall come and they shall set everyone his throne at the entering of the gates of Jerusalem and against the walls thereof round about and against all the cities of Judah. And I will utter my judgments against them, touching all their wickedness who have forsaken me and have burned incense unto other gods and worship the works of their own hands. Thou therefore gird up thy loins and arise and speak unto them all that I command thee. Be not dismayed at their faces lest I confound thee before them. Most preachers in training have been reminded to call this verse to mind every now and then. Be not dismayed at their faces as you try to preach the word and everybody looks like they're just confused or hungry or something. You got to keep plowing forward. But God said you're preaching to the Jewish Israel, the people of Israel in a time where they have rejected me. They're taking the incense and they're burning it upon the altar of idols and worshiping false gods that they've made out of their own hands. 
And God had to tell him, gird up your loins. Do all that I command you to do. Tell them what I tell you to tell them. And don't be dismayed at their faces. In other words, don't be discouraged, Jeremiah. Because in your ministry, you're going to be preaching to people who reject what you say, who have rejected me, and therefore they're going to reject you. And we have to remember that while God uses people, God uses preachers, God uses Christians to give the gospel... It is ultimately God that does the work. And it's ultimately up to the hearer to decide if they will receive or reject the message of God. From all we can tell in Scripture, Jeremiah was a good man. He was a mighty prophet. He fulfilled all that God told him to do. He preached faithfully and ferociously. And they threw him in jail. They put him in the stocks to be a public disgrace and whipped his back. And they didn't repent. And they were carried away into judgment just like God had warned them was going to happen. Contrast the life of Jeremiah with the ministry of the prophet Jonah, who God said, go preach to Nineveh and tell them they have to repent or they're going to be destroyed. And Jonah said, I don't like Nineveh. I don't like the people there. I know what they do to preachers and I know what they do to Jews. And I don't even want them to get saved. So I'm going to run the other way. And God sent him the trials and eventually had to let him go through being swallowed by the great fish and being in the depths of the ocean for three days and three nights before he was spit up and entered into the nation to the city of Nineveh where he was going. And he went in and said, all right, Lord, you want me to preach? Fine, I guess I'll preach. In 40 days, this whole city is going to be destroyed unless you repent. And they all repented and turned to God. Any preacher's dream to preach to a city and they all come to the Lord overnight and begin to fast and repent and wear sackcloth and ashes. And Jonah goes outside the city and he says, I knew God was merciful and would forgive them. That's why I didn't want to go. And he was mad that they repented because apparently he did not like that nation and what they had done to his people. And God had to teach him how wrong that was. And the book of Jonah ends without us really knowing if Jonah ever repented or was ever used by God again. So on one hand, you have a rebellious prophet who comes in and preaches and all of the people believe. And then in the case of Isaiah and Jeremiah and even of the Lord Jesus Christ, you had the message being preached that could save, that was needed by the people, that they needed to hear, that could give life. And they said, no, thank you. We don't want that. So God said, Jeremiah, prepare to serve me in this dark day because the truth is still the truth. Whether people believe it or not, whether they receive you or reject you, whether they praise you or put you in prison... The truth is still the truth. Jeremiah 2, 4 through 8. Hear ye the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord, What iniquity have your fathers found in me, that they are gone far from me, and have walked after vanity, and are become vain? Neither said they, Where is the Lord that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, that led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and of pits, through a land of drought and the shadow of death, through a land that no man passed through, and where no man dwelt? God said, why is it that your fathers have so soon forgotten what I did for them when I brought them out of Egypt, when I delivered them from slavery and death and captivity and warned them and told them, obey me and I will bless you, reject me and you will be judged. Why have they forgotten? God said, but they did forget. They did rebel. God says that I brought you into a plentiful country to eat the fruit thereof and the goodness thereof. But when ye entered, ye defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priest said not, where is the Lord? And they that handle the law knew me not. The pastors also transgressed against me. And the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. Another thing that was bringing the judgment of the Lord upon that land is in a day and age where everybody was rebelling against the message, the priest, the pastors, which would be shepherds, religious and civil, the prophets. They said things that God did not tell them to say, and they claimed to speak for God when they were not speaking for God. And God said he would very harshly judge anyone who claims to be saying something in the name of the Lord that the Lord did not say. A few more here. Verse 13 of chapter 2. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. That's always the twofold sin that happens when God's people turn away from God or people that God would forgive and would save. Like when he said to Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you under my wings. I would have forgiven you. I would have given you life and protection, but ye would not. 
We have to forsake the living water, which we know in the New Testament is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, as he told the woman at the well. But when we forsake the living and the true, we have to try to come up with our own replacements for it. And God said the wells that you have tried to dig out are broken. They can hold no water at all. So you've forsaken what's right and you've tried to replace it, which that which cannot heal or give life. Verse 19, thine own wickedness shall correct thee and thy backsliding shall reprove thee. Know therefore and see that it is an evil thing and bitter that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God and that my fear is not in thee, saith the Lord of hosts. A couple more passages of scripture here before we get into that the brief outline that we have. Jeremiah 5 verse 11. For the house of Israel and the house of Judah hath dealt very treacherously against me, saith the Lord. They have belied the Lord and said, It is not he, neither shall evil come upon us, neither shall we see sword nor famine. And the prophet shall become wind, and the word is not in them. Thus shall it be done unto them. Wherefore, thus saith the Lord God of hosts, because ye speak this word, behold, I will make my words in thy mouth fire, and this people wood, and it shall devour them. Lo, I will bring a nation upon you from far, O house of Israel, saith the Lord. It is a mighty nation. It is an ancient nation, a nation whose language thou knowest not, neither understandest what they say. Their quiver is an open sepulcher. They are all mighty men. They shall eat up thine harvest and thy bread, which thy sons and thy daughters should eat. They shall eat up thy flock and thine herds. They shall eat up thy vines and thy fig trees. They shall impoverish thy fenced cities wherein thou trustest with the sword. You see, there's always consequences for rejecting the word of the Lord. There's always consequences for disobeying him. And the nation of Israel was soon to learn, you can choose your sin and your rebellion, but you cannot choose what the consequences will be. In the Old Testament, Israel didn't have a king. They were a theocracy, meaning they were led by God himself. God would give the message to the prophets. The prophets would give it to the people. And God was the ruler over Israel. But in the book of Kings, they went to Samuel and they said, we want a king like all the other nations have. We're tired of being distinct. We're tired of this way. We want to do it the same way everyone else is. And Samuel was angry and he went to the Lord. And the Lord said, Samuel, if that's what the people want, then give it to them. They've not rejected thee, they've rejected me. And ultimately, the rejection of someone who proclaims the truth is a rejection of the truth and of the God who gave the truth. And Samuel went back to the people and he said, you can have your king if you want him, if you want God to be replaced with a human king. But I just want to let you know a couple of things. When you have a king, you have things like taxes, things like a draft, and things like your children being taken from you to be sent off to war, and the fruit being taken off of the vines of your vineyards that it may be paid as tribute to the king. And they said, we do not want God, we want a king. And God gave them what they wanted to. Here these verses are describing in detail what was going to happen when Babylon marched down from the north and ransacked their city and took away their children. Nevertheless, in those days, saith the Lord, I will not make a full end with you. You see, the promise he made to Israel was always with this caveat that though I chastise you, I will not cast off my people forever. I will not make a full end with you. But there will be consequences. Let's build now to verse 16, then we'll go to our outline. This is Jeremiah 6, verse 8. Be thou instructed, O Jerusalem, lest my soul depart from thee, lest I make thee desolate, a land not inhabited. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, they shall thoroughly glean the remnant of Israel as a vine. Turn back thine hand as a grape gatherer into the baskets. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ear is uncircumcised, that they cannot hearken. Behold, the word of the Lord is unto them a reproach. They have no delight in it. I'm going to jump ahead of myself, but just remember as we build to verse 16 and God rebukes them for having forsaken the old paths, he's used the word abomination, which is a severe sin against a direct command of the Lord. And here he says the actual problem is that the word of the Lord is a reproach unto them and they don't want to hear the words of God. And that's ultimately what the forsaking of the old paths is. Verse 11, therefore I am full of fury of the Lord. I am weary withholding in. I will pour it out upon the children abroad and upon the assembly of young men together. For even the husband with the wife shall be taken, the aged with him that is full of days. And their houses shall be turned unto others with their friends and wives together. For I will stretch out mine hand upon the inhabitants of the land, saith the Lord. 
For from the least of them, even unto the greatest of them, everyone is given to covetousness. And from the prophet, even unto the priest, everyone dealeth falsely. They have healed also the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? Nay, they were not at all ashamed, neither could they blush. Therefore they shall fall among them that fall. At the time that I visit them, they shall be cast down, saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways, and see, and ask for the old paths, wherein is the good way, and walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your souls. But they said, We will not walk therein. Everybody still here? All right, I'm going to take a drink of water. My dad used to say, you say something like that, and all the people who weren't listening, all of a sudden they look up and say, what's he doing up there now? I'm going to listen for a minute. Three simple points. Number one, the new paths were biblically defined sins. God rebukes their sins specifically all throughout this book of Jeremiah. Again, it was the worship of idols. It was immorality, child sacrifice, greed, and false prophets. These were all clearly defined as wicked in the law of God. The one that he gave the Jews in his word. When he gave them the law of Moses, the Pentateuch, and then began to build upon it with the books of poetry and the major and minor prophets, God gave them his word in which he clearly defined some things as wrong and as wicked and as associated with bringing judgment from God upon you. And they forgot the law of God and chose to do those things anyway. I believe that as Christians, we should, by nature, beware of things that are new, just for the sake of being new. And I think a pass, as pastor, I could probably drive everybody crazy if I read all of the newest books and studies and church methodology and every two months I got excited about something new and said, well, now we're going to try this over here and then pulled the wheel over here and said, well, this is how they said to fill up the church and this is an idea and this is what somebody else did. Now, I read a lot of books and a lot of ideas and it's not wrong to try something new as a new method but we should be careful of the idea of, as what Charles Spurgeon said, if you create a carnival to get people to come to church, you're going to have to give them a carnival to keep them coming back to church. And while it could be true that we could look and maybe find some of the things in the mega church model that are not really biblical and that are fleshly and are trying to be used to pull things in, I think we should be slow when we change things. I believe the thing that we should be the most careful and wary of is a new teaching, a new doctrine. Now, as I study the Word of God, and you do, we may come up with something that is new to us that we've never heard before. But if it's something nobody's ever heard before, then you might have to be careful because there's probably a reason why nobody's ever heard it before. God told His people to preach the Word faithfully, to not be always seeking something new. And Pastor Andy Stanley, State of Georgia, is it? He's had one famous clip where he said, we just have to unhitch Christianity from the Old Testament. We have to get it separate from all those old books and don't talk about them. And while we need to understand we're living in a different day and age and some different interpretation of the verses that were written to Israel was written to the church, God said the things that were written in the Old Testament were for our example, for our benefit, for our learning, and it's every bit as much the Word of God as the New then he had a clip where he was chastising the church for being too judgmental and using the clobber passages when talking about the sins of homosexuality and went on to say that you could be in his church and be welcome and even be members and even be in positions of leadership if you were living that lifestyle. What's the problem there? Is it that they tried a new Bible study structure or they moved the time of the service from 11 to 1045? No, the problem was that they were affirming things that the Word of God clearly does not affirm and the Word of God clearly rebukes. Rick Warren's church was recently removed from the Southern Baptist Convention because after 30 years, he said, well, I've gotten it wrong all this time and I had the wrong verses and I should have studied more. And when he retired, they ordained both men and women to be the pastors of that church. And while we believe that the word of God gives place for men and for women to have value and to serve the Lord, we believe that Paul was very clear that the office of a pastor should be reserved for a man. And he tied it to creation, not to the culture of his day. He said, for Adam was first formed 
and then Eve, and then Eve. So what's the problem with that? Is it just that somebody had a new idea? No, it's not just the newness of the idea. It's that it goes against what the word of God clearly said we are not supposed to do. Here's another couple verses that we hear that I've heard quite often from Proverbs 24, 21 and 22. My son, fear thou the Lord and the king and meddle not with them that are given to change for their calamity shall rise suddenly and who shall know the ruin of them both. So what he's saying is be careful, look out, be on the lookout and be a little bit suspicious of a person who is given to change, who's always questioning everything. And I believe, again, he's not just talking about, well, I'm going to change the style of shirt that I wear or something like that. Here's what Benson commentary says about these verses. Literally mix not thyself with changers or changeable persons. That is join not in the councils, practices, or familiar conversation of those that love changes, that are unstable in their obedience to God or to the king and are prone to rebel against either of them. So historically, they looked at those verses, meddle not with those who are given to change. And they said, be careful with those who are always wanting to question and change the ways of God, the ways of the king, the ways of governance that God gave to the nation of Israel and that have a very rebellious nature. Be careful with them, God said. The apostle Paul worked with younger preachers. And in Titus chapter two, he told Titus, but speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. The word doctrine is teaching. And in this epistle, he warns him against endless and foolish, unlearned questions and strivings about the law and genealogies, for they are unprofitable and vain. And he goes on in chapter two to give very specific direction for the groups of people in the church, the men, the ladies, and so on, and how we are to behave ourselves. Then he says in verse 15, these things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. Now, if we are speaking on the authority of the word of God, we can exhort, which is to encourage and build up. We can rebuke, which is to say you are wrong and you must repent. And we can do it with authority. But only when we can clearly specify it and claim it and show that it comes from the word of God. If we are on our own opinions, then we do not have the ability to speak them with authority or we will be found to be foolish. And apart from what God has told us to do, Acts 17, 21, for all the Athenians and the strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. They had a tradition they loved to gather outside of the city in what was kind of the uh, Facebook discussion group of their day or the Starbucks or whatever it may be. They went out in their free time and what they loved to do was hear what's new. What's something that will tickle our ears and give us another option for what could be true? And in our day and age, people say, well, tell me something new. It's okay. Give me your perspective. You speak your truth and I'll speak my truth. But the word of God says there's no such thing as my truth or your truth. There is the truth. And then there's foolishness apart from it. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. The word here for superstitious literally means extreme religiosity having to do with the formulas and the whatever you want to call it, the rules, the regulations. They love to hear something new. But again, Paul, when writing to young Timothy, the pastor of the church, said, preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. And the church today, I believe the word of God has been completed. We do not need new revelation, new ideas no one's ever come up with before. Even new methods of man. While again, maybe we can learn from something that somebody tried in their church and pray about what God like us to try it in our church. What we need is not to give all of our time to the studies of methodology and how to get a big church. But the pastor was told, give all your time to studying the word of God and preach what's in there. That's what people need and trust God to build the church. We need the word of God. Jude said, though, you know, these things, I will put you in remembrance of them. Peter said, I will always remind you of these things, though you already know them. Why then would God tell us, read the Bible, consume the word of God, go to the weekly gathering, the assembling of the believers, hear the preaching of the word, because I could read the Bible and get to the end. I could hear a sermon on every topic I could think of and think, well, now I know it all. 
But God says, I know your nature and I know your ability to slide. So then what we are supposed to do is not to have uh, be bored with the truth, with the steady diet, the meat and potatoes of the word of God and say, tell me something new I've never heard before. We're supposed to have a hunger for the word of God to say, though I've heard it before, I'm sure I've forgotten some of it and I know I need to be reminded of it. So let me give myself to a lifelong pursuit of hearing line upon line, precept upon precept, the word of God and not get bored with it or turn away from it. Number one, the old paths that they had forsaken. That's not what number one was. Let me see. I have to write it down. I forgot. When I was a child on the way home, my dad would always say, what did you like about the message today? And then sometimes I'd panic because I couldn't remember what he preached about. And he'd say, well, what was my third point? And I'd be like, if you can't remember it, why do you think I have to remember it? I mean, you're the one that preached it. (laughs) Number one, the new paths were biblically defined sins. Number two, the old paths are the direct commands of the word of God. What are the old paths he was talking about? It was things that he had already told them in black and white in the word of God. This is your command. This is how you are supposed to live. This was the old and ancient paths that their fathers had followed and were blessed. This was the law of Moses. This was the books of the Old Testament. This was the direct revelation of the word of God. And the word picture in Jeremiah 6 is a bit of uh, giving the picture as if they were at a crossroads. Well, here's the path we're headed down. But God says the old way that your forefathers followed that I gave them and told them to go down in my word is still open. You can choose. Go the good way. Go the blessed way. But yet they were not willing to do it. So Jeremiah 6, 1, 6 says the old paths walk in them. That word for old in the Hebrew you can see here has the meaning of eternity. You can look through different ways that it's used. But the words used to describe it are eternal everlasting, of old, lasting, beginning of the world, and such. 272 times it's translated in the Bible as ever. 63 times it's translated as everlasting. So what was God telling them when he said, follow the old way? He was saying the everlasting way, my way, the way that I gave you and clearly defined as being right or as being wrong. Jeremiah 18, 15, my people have forgotten me. They have burned incense to vanity and they have caused them to stumble in their ways from the ancient paths to walk in paths in a way not cast up. Thus saith the Lord, stand ye in the ways and see and ask for the old paths. Where is the good way and walk therein and ye shall find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk therein. So when he's saying walk in the old paths, he's saying walk in the scripture, walk in the way that is everlasting my way for I'm from everlasting and I define the truth. I tell you what's right and what's wrong. And in the day and age where we live here in the church age, we have the scripture and it is sufficient What did he tell Timothy? From a child thou hast known the holy scriptures. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for reproof, for correction, for doctrine, instruction in righteousness. All of those things that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished, perfect unto all good works. Where do we need to get our doctrine from? The scripture. Where do we get our practice from? The scripture. And it's sufficient. We believe that you cannot enter heaven Unless you have believed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the Bible says so. Because Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. We believe that marriage is biblically defined as one man and one woman for one lifetime. Because that's how the word of God defined it. And in all manners of sin and what we stand up and say, this is wrong. And in all matter of church practice and good works where we stand up and say, we affirm this is right. By God's grace, we are doing it because we can point to chapter and verse and clearly define this is what God has said. Therefore, we have the authority to say it. Number three, our hope is not in man. Jeremiah chapter five, run ye to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem and see now and know and seek in the broad places thereof. If ye can find a man, if there be any that executeth judgment that seeketh the truth and I will pardon it. God said, go start looking for a man that's good, that's living out the way he's supposed to. 
And though they say the Lord liveth, surely they swear falsely. Find someone who's actually living out the truth, not just claiming it. O Lord, are not thine eyes upon the truth? Thou hast stricken them, but they have not grieved. Thou hast consumed them, but they have refused to receive correction. They have made their faces harder than a rock. They have refused to return. Therefore I said, surely these are poor. These are foolish. For they know not the way of the Lord, nor the judgment of their God. So Jeremiah said, I went looking for people who were living righteously. I went looking for people who I could put my hope in. I went looking for people that I could go back and tell God, they are truly righteous. They're truly doing the right thing. Would you spare our nation? And he said, well, I went to the poor side of town and I didn't find anybody there. I will get me unto the great men, he says next, and will speak to them. For they have known the way of the Lord and the judgment of their God. I'll seek great men. But these have altogether broken the yoke and burst the bonds. The sense of this verse is Jeremiah says, I will go to the great men and speak unto them and see if they will be able to give the answer. But then he says, but they also have broken the yoke of God's law and the bonds of his precepts. Wherefore a lion out of the forest shall slay them, and a wolf of the evening shall spoil them. A leopard shall watch over their cities. Every one that goeth out thence shall be torn in pieces, because their transgressions are many, and their backslidings are increased. So Jeremiah went looking for a man who was righteous and a man who was living it out. And he said, I didn't find it among the poor, so I went unto the great men. But they had forsaken the Lord too. Church, this is a very simple message this morning, but just remember our hope is in the Lord. It's not in a person. It's not in a savior that's going to come to the pulpit or to the White House. It's going to come in the Lord Jesus Christ, our one true savior who will one day come from heaven and set everything right. And sometimes people have faced a crossroads in their faith because a teacher or preacher that was mighty used of the Lord or someone in their life like a mentor who even gave them the gospel and brought them to Christ in the first place then apostatizes and says that Christ is not Lord gives evidence that they were never truly saved or they fall into some gross and horrible sin and it can crush us because it hurts but God said, ultimately, remember, the answers are not with the great men. The answers are with Christ. Amen. And we are simply the servants of Christ. Be it the pastor, the father, the husband, the mother, the teacher, the mentor, whatever person we may look to at a different time in life for the answers. Yes, God works through people, but it's just God working through them. There is no greatness in man Amen. apart from what God allows them to do. Yeah. Men are fallible. Men will fall. So we follow leadership. Yes, in a way that is biblically appropriate. But we do not idolize them. So what we remember then, as we said, the forsaking of the old paths was sinning against God. The old paths they were to follow were the direct commands of God. We remember that our hope is not in man. So the forsaking of man or man's methodology is not necessarily a forsaking of the old paths. If we're following God on our way, the same way that they followed God in theirs, the old passages defined in the scriptures are not the 1960s or whatever you could look back and say, those were the good old days. We need to do things exactly the same way they did them. We can surely learn from people of God in every day and age, but they lived in a different world and served God to the best of their ability. And what we're supposed to not do is not change what the Bible says. But if we're rebuking people for changing something that somebody did at some prior time and saying, well, you're sinning, then we're not following the true sense of what God told his people when he said, don't forsake the old paths. Yes, we separate over doctrine and false teaching, but I don't believe we should separate from other brothers or sisters in Christ or churches over methods and choices that may not clearly be defined as a sin in the word of God. We have to follow God in the Bible to the best of our ability and perhaps show some grace to those who are trying to do the same, but don't do it exactly the way that we do it. As I had written down for quite a while that I wanted to get to this verse, what I wanted to do in bringing the message was to give research to what this means biblically, to walk in the old paths. And as a part of that, I wanted to know what did they define the old paths as historically, hundreds of years ago when they were preaching the word of God, not just within the last century. A preacher named J.C. Ryle wrote a book in 1878. 
And the book was a collection of essays about Bible doctrines, and he called it The Old Paths. You should walk in the old paths. So I said, well, there would be a pretty good clue to go and see what this Bible teacher meant when he said walk in the old paths. He had about 20 chapters of the book. And among the titles of the chapters, the collection of essays that he wrote about were the topics, inspiration of scripture, the souls of men, our eternal hope, our sins, forgiveness, justification, the cross of Christ, the Holy Spirit, having the Holy Spirit, conversion, the heart, Christ invitation, faith, repentance, and Christ's power to save. He says in the preface of the book, the volume in the reader's hands consists of a series of papers systematically arranged on the leading truths of Christianity, which are necessary to salvation. Few probably will deny that there are some things in religion about which we may think other people hold very erroneous views and are notwithstanding, in no danger of being finally lost, about baptism and the Lord's Supper, about the Christian ministry, about forms of prayer and modes of worship, about the union of the church and state, about all these things that is commonly admitted that people may differ widely and yet be finally saved. Did you know someone can have different opinions than you and can still go to heaven? Because we don't go to heaven because your opinions are the same as mine. We go to heaven if we're washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. So then even with a local church assembly, God is glorified when out of diversity of backgrounds and opinions and beliefs about some varying matters that are not essential to salvation. People say, I will put aside my rights and my wanting to have everybody agree with me. And maybe we can't agree on everything, but out of diversity, we will have unity around what really matters, which is the preaching of the gospel and the core bedrock doctrines of the word of God, the fundamentals of the faith, the things that are so clearly defined as being important that if you were to remove them from the faith, you wouldn't have a faith at all. And we say, let's follow the Lord. Let's love each other. And even let each other be a little bit different and admit that the other person might just be saved the same way I am. He goes on to say, no doubt there are always bigots and extreme partisans who are ready to excommunicate everyone who cannot pronounce their shibboleth on the above name points. But speaking generally to shut out of heaven, all who disagree with us about these things is to take up a position which most thoughtful Christians condemn as unscriptural, narrow and uncharitable. To that I say, amen. I have a few more little selections from the preface of the book I'd like to read, but as I conclude them, I'm wrapping up here this morning. On the other hand, he says, there are certain great truths of which some knowledge by common consent appears essential to salvation. Such truths are the immortality of the soul, the sinfulness of human nature, the work of Christ for us as our Redeemer, the work of the Holy Ghost in us, forgiveness, justification, conversion, faith, repentance, the marks of a right heart, Christ's invitations, Christ's intercession, and the like. If truths like these are not absolutely necessary to salvation, it is difficult to understand how any truths whatsoever can be called necessary. If people may be saved without knowing anything about these truths, it appears to me that we may throw away our Bibles altogether and proclaim that the Christian religion is of no use. In other words, yes, we can disagree about some secondary things that are outside of what is so essential, but there has to be some definition of truth and of truths that if we get them wrong, we cannot walk together in unity. I love you, whoever you are, but if you come try to tell me that Jesus was not God, he was just a prophet and a good man, and the bodily resurrection didn't actually happen, we can't walk together. Because that's false doctrine. From time to time, people will ask me, well, what kind of a church are you? Is it a Baptist church? Yep. That gives some historical doctrines that we identify with, that lets people know when we put that on the sign, what we stand for, at least a good starting place. Well, are you in the uh, convention? No, we're an independent church. We, we're not in a convention. Why well, are you a fundamental? Are you a fundamentalist? And usually I say, well, you go ahead and tell me what that means. And then maybe I can answer your question. The term originally originated from people when they were looking at what was going on around them. And other people who claimed to be Bible teachers were beginning to apostatize and question if the Old Testament was actually inspired of God. 
questioned whether Jesus was really born of a virgin, questioned different ways of salvation and the eternality of the soul and all such things on and on they could go. And into the 1950s and 40s, certain Baptist universities like Baylor had professors who were supposed to be teaching the Bible and they were teaching evolution. And throughout history, groups of men have said what it originally meant was here are some core bedrock doctrines that if they are removed from our faith, we don't have a faith at all. If we deny these from the Word of God, we could deny the whole thing. And it was usually the virgin birth of Christ, the inspiration of Scripture, Christ as our only way to heaven, things that were so important that they were very fundamental to the faith and could not be removed. And upon those I stand and I affirm Whatever other definitions people have, positive or negative, they'll have to make up their own mind, I guess. J.C. Ryle goes on to say, The name which I have selected will prepare the reader to expect no new doctrines in this volume. It is simply unadulterated, old-fashioned, evangelical theology. It contains nothing but the old paths in which the apostolic, apostolic Christians, the reformers, the best English churchmen for the last 300 years, and the best evangelical Christians of the present day have persistently walked from these paths, I see no reason to depart. They are often sneered at and ridiculed as old-fashioned, effete, worn out, and powerless in the 19th century. Be it so, none of these things move me. In other words, if you want to call me names for standing upon the historic traditional truths of the word of God, then so be it. It doesn't bother me at all. I'll stand with God. I'll stand with his word. I have yet to learn that there is any system of religious teaching by whatever name it may be called, which produces one quarter of the effect on human nature that is produced by the old despised system of doctrine, which is commonly called evangelical. In the 1800s, he was calling it evangelical. That word may have a different connotation today than it did two, three hundred years ago. But he's talking about a Christian who believes it's his duty from God to evangelize the world and give the gospel. I will willingly admit the zeal, earnestness, and devotedness of many religious teachers who are not evangelical. But I firmly maintain that the way of the school to which I belong is the more excellent way. The longer I live, the more I am convinced that the word that the world needs no new gospel, as some profess to think. I am thoroughly persuaded that the world needs nothing but a bold, full flinch, full unflinching teaching of the old paths. The heart of man is the same in every age. The spiritual medicine which it requires is always the same. One last quote. He says, I repeat most emphatically that I am not ashamed of what are commonly called evangelical principles. Fiercely and bitterly as those principles are assailed on all sides, loudly and scornfully as some proclaim that they have done their work and are useless in this day, I see no evidence whatsoever that they are defective or decayed and I see no reason for giving them up. No doubt other schools of thought produce great outward effects on mankind, gather large congregations, attain great popularity, and by means of music, ornaments, gestures, postures, and generally histrionic ceremonial, make a great show of religion. I see it all and I am not surprised. It is exactly what a study of human, human nature by the light of the Bible would lead me to expect. And goes on to say, but I will stand on the old ways, the word of God. He could have written some of that last part in 2023 and we would not be surprised. For many have indeed left the faithful teaching and preaching of the word of God and proclaiming it and leading the church to worship him in spirit and in truth in pursuit of a crowd. And I would like to have a crowd here. I'm glad you're here. I'd like to have more. They're going to have a crowd at the Dallas Cowboys football game today. But that's not church or the way God prescribed it. So then we stand on the old paths what the word of God has defined as right and against what he has defined as wrong. But this verse was not given for us to then take and criticize another brother who's serving the Lord across town or across the country over the fact that he may not wear a tie when he preaches. By the way, thank you all for not being offended that I don't wear a tie because I hate it. <laughs> And I've always hated it. Since I was a little kid, I hated it. I don't even know whose idea it was to start off the day as a successful, dignified person by tying your, your collar up like that. 
or saying that they're no longer on the old paths if they change the time that church starts or if they sing a new song that hasn't been sung there before or if he reads his notes from an iPad or puts the Bible verses even up on a screen so that people can read them. Our world this morning does not need something new, not something we've never heard of before. We don't need the ways of men. We should not be consistently seeking men and their new methodology as what will help us and make us successful, but rather we should be spending that time in the Word of God, seeing what God said we're supposed to do. We don't need to be liberated into sin. We don't need man-made religion, rules, and regulations. We need the old paths, the good way. And by that, we mean the one described in explicit detail in God's holy word. First, it tells us how to come to him for salvation. How can we go to heaven? It's by repenting of, uh, of unbelief, of the fact that we are a sinner and admitting that we are a sinner, turning away from our preconceived notions of trying to earn our way to heaven or anything we believe before we heard the true gospel. We have to repent away from that. And put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the fact that he died on a cross and paid for the sins of all the world. And now says, come to me, look to me and be saved all ye ends of the earth. He that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. If you want to be born again, if you want to go to heaven, believe in me, Jesus says. Not your good works, your church membership, your baptism or your keeping of rules. We come to Christ for salvation the way that his word has always told us to do so. And then as we study the word line by line, verse by verse... We find all we need that is necessary for the sanctification of us as believers. Not that we will reach a state of sinless perfection, but we can grow in grace, mature, and be able to teach others also. The Bible is sufficient, and all throughout history, God commanded us, don't take away from my word, not one single thing, and don't add to my word. Not one single thing. Heavenly Father, bless the thought this morning. I pray that someone would be blessed. I pray this message would be good for our church, that we would be encouraged in two different ways to continue to follow the truth and also to love other people within the church and without the church who may be somewhat different than us. But if we can stand upon the truth of the word of God and upon salvation and upon the fact that Christ is coming and that all will face him and all need the gospel and say, I'll, I'll gather together with this church. I'll love other Christians for fellowship, for worship, for the teaching and edifying of the body, for worldwide missions, for all these things. May we strive together, but may we not fall prey to desiring something new that departs from the word of God, but rather continue in what you've given us. The music will play. Let's have a moment of prayer at this time before we're dismissed.